0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, 1 Kings chapter 15. Well, the event that ended our last lesson was the death of Rehoboam, king of Judah, who was Solomon's son. Succeeded him to the throne. Now he had ruled for 17 years from Shlomo's death until about 911 BC. Now we're going to spend a good deal of time today by doing a little bit of housekeeping and giving you some information that I think will help you in having a needed context for understanding what's occurring. While in some cases what I'm going to tell you may sound like something only a seminary professor might appreciate, that's not the case. You can understand it, and it can be quite helpful in getting a good picture of what's going on. Now, as was mentioned in the last lesson, one of the main difficulties was studying the two books of the kings from here forward is that the nations of Israel had by now dissolved into two independent kingdoms under separate kings. And for the most part, the two kingdoms were hostile to one another. Thus each kingdom had its own king and so when a certain king is being discussed, we have to be aware over which kingdom that king was reigning over Israel over Judah. And further, since both of the kingdoms are still Hebrew kingdoms, Israelite kingdoms, then they both matter. And they both play significant roles in redemption history. These kingdoms split along the traditional Israelite tribal coalition lines that had existed since before Joshua ushered the 12 tribes into Canaan. Thus, since the two kingdoms and their people bear equal importance, the Book of the Kings consistently gives us timelines, it gives us sequences, not in terms of calendar dates, but rather according to the synchronization of the years of the reigns of the northern kings versus the southern kings. And as students of the Bible, you need to know these things to help avoid confusion. So let's talk about the biblical timelines in another sense the actual amount of time that these various kings sat on the throne. See, chronology can be a real stumbling block for some folks. Several lessons ago, I explained that the Bible uses at least five different chronology systems. And it can be difficult to discern which ones at work at any particular time. That said, when it comes to the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, we can make a general but not absolute statement that the dating system was what scholars call the accession year system. In other words, as we move through the book of Kings, and we also add in information from Chronicles, we're going to get reports about how long a certain king ruled before he died. Or even how long a king of Judah had been reigning before a new king came to power. Or same thing as in Israel. Vice or vice versa. However, the number of years that he reigned can be misleading. And so serious Bible teachers and scholars say They find many inconsistencies with how long Israel's kings ruled. Because then, when you add up a long list of kings according to the number of years the Bible said each of them has reigned, often it doesn't line up with another biblical record of that same period of time. Here's an example of what happens caused the difficulty. In the accession year system, the year in which the king comes into power is immediately counted as a full year, no matter how how few or how many days or months remain in that year. So, if we use the modern calendar just to make this explanation easier, if an imaginary king took the throne on December 31st, in the year of 2010, that one day that he ruled in 2010 is said to count as a year's reign. Because he reigned during the calendar year of 2010. If that king somehow died three days later on January 2nd, 2011, then The two days he reigned in 2011 are also counted as a full year because he reigned during the calendar year of 2011. Thus our imaginary king would have reigned for three actual days but the biblical record would say he reigned for two years. Because it doesn't mean a duration of two years, two solar cycles, but rather that he reigned some amount of time during two calendar years. One day in 2010, two days in 2011, in our example. You with me? Yeah. Okay. If that same king ruled until January 1st, 2012, which is now a period of only 368 days, the the biblical record would say he ruled for three years because he ruled at least one day in the calendar years of 2010, 2011, and 2012. On the other hand, if this imaginary king took over on January 1st, 2010, the first day of the new year of 2010, and he ruled until December 31st of 2012, he would also have been considered to have reigned for three years. Because he too ruled for at least one day in the calendar years of 2010, 2011, 2012, even though he reigned for 1,095 days. Let me say that another way. Because of the Bible using the accession year system for dealing with kings, because that's what the Hebrew culture and most Middle Eastern cultures did, a king could rule for as little as 366 days and as much as, uh, as 1,095 days and in both cases the length of his reign would be reported in the scriptures as three years. Okay, So particularly as we have entered an era of the kings when many of the kings ruled only briefly you can get some pretty strange results if you start adding up the recorded years of each years of each king's reign. You wind up with a lot more years of reign than the actual years that were in that time period. It's merely because of the traditional use of the accession year system that causes this anomaly. But let's also be clear that we really don't have a way to accurately straighten it all out. Because most of the time we aren't given a month or a day of the year when a king's reign began or when it ended. We can get close, but that's about it. Now, for one more important housekeeping matter. It's difficult to teach About the era of the kings by only using the two books of the kings, because this same era is also recorded in the two books of Chronicles. And while academics refer to these two sets of Bible books as parallel accounts, meaning that they both talk about the same kings and mostly about the same events, in reality, the book of kings will mention things that are not in Chronicles, and vice versa. But even more challenging, sometimes you will get conflicting information about the same king and the same event between the book of Kings and the books of Chronicles. Now usually this is not difficult to deal with, but other times it can be a real head-scratcher. Usually, non-believers and skeptics have a field day with these kinds of instances. So I'm going to continue to include statements and excerpts from the book of Chronicles to add pertinent information that I think is helpful for us in our study of the book of Kings. But also understand that at times these conflicts between the books of Kings, what they say versus what the books of Chronicles say are quite real and there's no simple solutions. Now the reason that this happens for the most part can be explained by using the familiar example of the so-called synoptic gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. See, the thing is that while those three different gospel books often tell the same story, we're going to sometimes get different information about those stories and about the characters involved. This is explained by Bible scholars and pastors and correctly so by saying that the three different gospel writers interviewed different witnesses to the events. They created these gospel accounts for different employers who had different goals and interests in mind. They came from different cultures (laughs) And so they wrote from different perspectives. Thus as concerns any particular event, one writer might focus on one aspect and ignore other aspects or interpret the meaning of relevant aspects of an, of an event entirely different than another of the Gospel writers. Frankly, it's this biblical reality that's been a prime contributor to the reason that Christianity has become a fractured religion of over 3,000 denominations, each taking unique views of the New Testament Gospels and Paul's epistles, and each of whom often run around calling the others who have a different perspective than themselves a cult. The, The two books of Kings, the two books of Chronicles, operate a little bit like the Synoptic Gospels. They were obviously taken from two separately created traditions that came from slightly different points of view about the era of the kings. The ancient editors of Chronicles seemed to have had access to different documents than the editors of kings had at their disposal from which they gathered their information to form their books. And these books were written well after the fact. So whatever they were using for documentation could easily have had a few copyist errors that would account for such things as slightly different names, slightly different places sometimes. So with that preface now, let's get into First Kings chapter 15 and the time immediately following the death of King Rehoboam. So let's read 1 Kings chapter 15. We're going to read all of it. Mm -hmm. It was in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, that Aviam, by the way your Bibles may say Aviyah, began his reign over Judah. He ruled three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Machah, the daughter of Avshalom. He committed all the sins his father had committed before him. He was not wholehearted with Adonai his God as David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, Adonai his God gave him a lamp burning in Jerusalem for establishing his son after him and making Jerusalem secure. For David had done what was right from God's perspective. He had not turned away from anything he had ordered him to do as long as he lived, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. There was a war between Rechoboam and Jeroboam as long as he lived. Other activities of Aviyam and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. But there was a war between Aviyam and Jeroboam. Aviam slept with his ancestors, they buried him in the city of David, and then Asa, his son, became king in his place. It was in the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, that Asa began his reign over Judah, and he ruled for forty-one years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. Asa did what was right from the perspective of Adonai, as David, his ancestor, had done. He rid the land of cult prostitutes and removed all the idols his ancestors had made. He also disposed... Makah from her position as queen mother, because she had made a disgusting image as an asherah. Asa cut down this image of hers and burned it in the wadi Kidron, but the high places were not removed nevertheless Asa was wholehearted with Adonai throughout his life he brought into the house of Adonai all the articles his father had consecrated also the things he himself had consecrated silver, gold, and utensils now there was war between Asa and Baasha king of Israel as long as they both lived Baasha attacked Judah he fortified Ramah to prevent anyone leaving or entering the territory of Asa king of Judah then Esau took all the silver and gold left among the treasures of the house of Adonai and among the treasures of the royal palace and entrusting them to his servants King Esau sent them to Ben-Hadad the son of Tavramon the son of Hazion king of Aram who lived in D- Damasak, Damascus with this message There is a covenant between me and you which existed already between my father and your father Here I'm sending you a present of of silver and gold. Go and break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will leave me alone. Ben-Hadad did as king Asa asked. He sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, attacking Ion, Dan, Avel, Bet-Macha, and all of Kinrot, all of the land of Naphtali. And as soon as Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he stayed in Tirzah. Now King Asa then issued a proclamation requiring every man in Judah with no exception to come and carry off the stones and timber that Baasha had used to fortify Ramah. And with them, King Asa fortified Geva of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the other activities of Asa, all of his power, all of his accomplishments and the cities he fortified are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. But in his old age, he suffered from a disease in his legs. And Asa slept with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, his ancestor. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, became king in his place. It was in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, that Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began his reign over Israel, and he ruled Israel for two years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, following the example of his father and the sin through which he had made Israel sin. Basha, the son of Ahia, from the descendants of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha attacked him at Gibton, which belonged to the Philistines. For at the time, Nadav and all Israel were besieging Gibton. It was in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, that Basha killed Nadav, and he became king in his place. As soon as he became king, he killed off the entire house of Jeroboam destroying every living soul, leaving not one survivor. This was in keeping with what Adonai had said through his servant Ahia from Shiloh. It was the punishment for the sins Jeroboam had committed and through which he had made Israel sin, thereby angering Adonai, God of Israel. Other activities of Nadav and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. There was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, as long as they both lived. And it was in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, that Baasha, the son of Akiah, began his reign over all Israel in Tirzah. And his rule lasted for 24 years. He did what was wrong from Adonai's perspective, following the example of Jeroboam and committing the sin through which he had made Israel sin. Uh, Rehoboam, king of Judah, was survived by Jeroboam, king of Israel. In fact, Jeroboam would witness two more kings of Judah arise Abiyam, or in your Bibles it may say Abiyah, all right, and then Asa after him. Right away, we see disagreement between the writers of the books of Kings versus those who wrote the books of Chronicles. In the books of Kings, Abiyam is not painted in a good light. Verse 3 says he behaved just like his father, Rehoboam, repeating all of his sins that the Lord condemned. And yet, we read this substantially different assessment about Abiyam in Second Chronicles 13. Turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles 13. Second Chronicles 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1196. <clears throat> and we're going to read 4 through 18. Verses 4 through 18 of... Uh, Second Chronicles 13 Abiyah standing on Mount Zamaraim in the hills of Ephraim cried Jeroboam and Israel listen don't you know that Adonai the God of Israel gave rulership over Israel to David forever to him and his descendants by a covenant of salt which is unbreakable yet Jeroboam the son of Nevat servant to Shlomo the son of David rose in rebellion against his Lord There rallied around him worthless brutes who were too strong for Rehoboam the son of Shlomo to withstand when he was young and inexperienced. Now you expect to withstand the kingdom of Adonai in the hands of the descendants of David. Yes, there are a great number of you. And you have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made as gods for you. Yes, you drove the priests of Adonai, the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. And you made yourselves priests as do the peoples in other countries so that anyone who comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams can become a priest of these non-gods. We are different. Adonai is our God. We've not abandoned him. We have priests performing the service for Adonai, for his descendants, for the descendants of Aaron, with the Levites doing their work. They burn to Adonai every morning and evening burnt offerings and sweet incense. They arrange the showbread on the pure table. They prepare the gold menorah with its lamps to burn every evening. For we observe the order of Adonai our God, but you have abandoned him. So look here. God is with us, leading us, and his priests with the battle trumpets to sound an alarm against you. People of Israel, don't fight against Adonai the God of your ancestors, because you will not succeed. But Jeroboam prepared to ambush them from behind so that the main body was ahead of Judah while the ambush was behind him. Thus, when Judah looked back, the battle had to be fought in front of them and behind them. They cried to Adonai. The Kohanim sounded the trumpets. Then the men of Judah gave forth a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Aviah and Judah. The people of Israel fled before Judah and God handed it over to them. Aviah and his army inflicted a great slaughter on them. 500,000 of Israel's select soldiers fell dead. Thus the people of Israel were subdued and the people of Judah won the victory because they relied on Adonai, the god of their ancestors. Aviah pursued Jeroboam, taking from the towns of Baedel with his villages, Yashinah with his villages, and Ephraim with his villages. Here is portrayed not only a righteous hero, but as somebody very loyal to the God of Israel. The rabbis say that the reason for this disparity is that the Second Chronicles account is taken from records that highlight the early part of um, uh, Abiyam's reign. The Book of Kings account is taken from the records that focus on the latter part of his short three-year reign. That may well be, but I think there is another reason for the difference of the writer's perspective as to Aviyam's status before the Lord. And we're going to tackle that in just a moment. First, there are some other difficulties with this passage that don't entirely agree with the parallel account in Second Chronicles 13. The issue is the lineage of Aviyam and then later Asa. Now, verse 2 says that Aviah's mother was Makah, and that she was a daughter of Absalom. In verse 10, Aviah's son, Asa, ascends to the throne of Judah, and the biblical record pronounces that Makah is also Asa's mother. But even more, 2 Chronicles 13, 1 and 2 says this. It was in the 18th year of King Jeroboam that Aviah began his reign over Judah. He ruled three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mikael, the daughter of Uriel from Kibah. So we have all kinds of issues here. Okay. First, in the book of Kings, we have the same woman, Makah, being mother to both Aviam and his son, Asa. Then in 2 Chronicles, we have that proposing an entirely different woman as the birth mother of of, uh, Asa, Michiel, daughter of Uriel. Now it's not too difficult untangle the problem of Maka and her role but the discrepancy of Michiel versus Maka as the mother is not so easily resolved now we're not going to spend too much time here but this much is certain they can't both be right the general agreement is that the correct woman is Maka, because the genealogy fits she is of the line of Absalom, who's a son of King David. Michial doesn't fit because her father is said to be Uriel of Gibeon. Gibeon is a city in the territory of Benjamin, meaning that Michial was a Benjamite, and this doesn't allow for God's promise of a continuance of the Davidic dynasty in Judah. How did Michial's name get inserted in here? Who knows? <laughs> I got offer you a half dozen speculations but that's all it would amount to for sure this was intentional this is no copyist error okay? but as with the several things of this sort in the bible we have to always step back and realize that these name differences essentially changes nothing of any importance Yet we also should not be so naive as to say there are no contradictions in the Bible whatsoever, no matter how minor. There are. All right, And here we've just examined one of them. Now assuming that Makah is at least the correct woman involved here, here's what the evidence in the rabbinical research shows about her. Makah was a granddaughter of Absalom. She was the birth mother of Aviah and the biological grandmother of Asa. Why is the term mother then employed, especially concerning Asa's relationship with Ma'akah? See, in biblical Hebrew, the word mother is M. M. In modern terms, Jews tend to use the affectionate term ima, ima, mama. However, M can carry with it a sense of not merely strict biological or parental relationship, but also one of a position of honor and authority, as when the judge Deborah was called an. M of Israel a mother of Israel in the book of Judges as we're soon going to see Macha was a powerful woman who held an official office in the royal court of Judah and that position in the Bible is called a Gevara Gevara is usually translated as queen mother and that's probably about as good as we can get in an English translation. She's not a queen, but for whatever reason, she had amassed her own political power base, and her son and her grandson had to do a lot of her bidding because of her political connections and her clout. Thus indeed she was a mother to Avia and to Asa in that sense. But who was Asa's biological mother? we're not told. And that would actually be quite typical in a Hebrew society to not record the mother's name. Now, let's redirect our efforts to trying to find out something that isn't quite so academic. But it does carry with it greater importance than it might seem at first glance. And the question before us is this. Why does First Kings 15 portray as an Aviyam is an unrighteous and unrepentant sinner in God's eyes who was just like his father Rehoboam. Yet 2 Chronicles 13 describes him as a righteous king who spoke so well of the Lord and he behaved in such an admirable way. Why is that? The short answer is that both descriptions are true simultaneously. But the long answer is a lot more fun. And we're going to begin our investigation of this quandary by looking at what seems like a repetitive and an insignificant phrase that's at the end of 1 Kings 15 verse 3. But it's actually the key that unlocks our understanding of this dilemma. There in verse 3, it says that Aviam's problem from this ancient editor's point of view was that he was not wholehearted. He was lo uh, levav low, low shalem, not wholehearted, as was his forefather David. This is then followed by a long explanation in verse 4. This says David did what was right, or, or better, upright, <laughs> as is the better meaning for the Hebrew word yashar in God's eyes. Except for that little matter (laughs) with Uriah the Hittite. Now you might recall that David had an affair with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, got her pregnant, then had Uriah murdered, so he could have Bathsheba to himself and cover up this adulterous affair and then in the process of covering up Uriah's murder many of David's most loyal soldiers were killed to help him establish an alibi. So other than for fornication, adultery and cold-blooded murder David was a very righteous man. (laughs) (laughs) Of course this seems like double talk. To say such a thing. But hasn't it seemed so to you anyway, as we read in the scriptures about David's inexcusable actions, that caused such calamities and human suffering, and yet, for some inexplicable reason, the Tanakh regularly repeats that the Lord holds David up as the standard for all of Israel's future kings to follow? Now I've mentioned on numerous occasions this tangled web of excuses that the rabbis have invented to excuse David's many horrific transgressions and make them not sinful or evil at all. Because otherwise it seems impossible to them to say that on one hand David was truly an adulterer and a murderer of grand scale but on the other hand he's also a righteous king who bears the attributes of the hope for Messiah see the issue of what separates the wholehearted king the Labav Shalem king from the evil unrighteous king comes down to what it is that makes David wholehearted in God's eyes not in our eyes and I don't know about you but that's something I kind of like to know for myself. I want to know what it is that makes a human, makes me wholehearted from Jehovah's perspective. And here's what it is it's to refrain from worshiping other gods, ever. It is to refrain from worshiping other gods, ever. it is not committing idolatry. Wholeheartedness is sticking steadfastly to Jehovah and it is not mixing pagan worship practices with pure worship or giving even tacit approval to others to do so. Wholeheartedness is fierce and exclusive loyalty to the God of Israel, even despite our deepest flaws, and our worst moral or criminal failures. David did many wrong things. He committed many detestable sins for which he paid a dear price. But he was never an idolater. He never gave his approval for idolatry. His psalms and the records of his deeds make it clear that his loyalty to the God of Israel and him alone remained intact all of his days. Notice how this fits hand in glove with what was said of Abraham perhaps a thousand years earlier than David in Genesis 15.6. He, Abraham, believed in Adonai, And he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. See, it wasn't a lack of sin. It wasn't living a perfect life. It wasn't being kind and merciful to other humans. It was a firm, passionate, unwavering trust in Jehovah that was counted as Abraham's righteousness and as David's wholeheartedness. Let's carry that through just a bit further. It is said that when we harm another person wrongly, we steal from them, we assault them, we kidnap them, we defraud them, we lie to them, we even kill them, we've sinned against God. Yet these kinds of sins are what I term indirect sins. The Ten Commandments list some laws that pertain to human to human interaction other laws that pertain to human to god reaction interaction a typical criminal action means that we've not come directly against god rather we've harmed another human in violation of the 10 commandments against such a thing and this is classified as sin on the other hand there are direct sins against god that really have no bearing on other humans. And chief among these are idolatry. Idolatry is not a criminal act as it harms no human. Making a graven image is not a criminal act because it doesn't do violence to a fellow human being. Refusing to offer a sacrifice of praise to the Lord or even a sacrifice of our income to Him causes no discomfort nor elicits any grievance from another man. Refusing to observe the Sabbath is not a societal crime because there's no danger or loss to person or property. In other words, one kind of sin, an indirect sin I call it, is human against human. The second kind of sin, a direct sin, is human against God. At least in Old Testament times, I can unequivocally state that the Lord used idolatry as that measure of whether a king was wholehearted or not towards him. A king of Israel could do all sorts of terrible things to his subjects and it was certainly counted as sin, and there was usually divine punishment for it. But as long as those sins didn't include idolatry, we find that king is defined as wholehearted towards the Lord. On the other hand, a king of Judah or Israel could be generally a very good king, reasonable with his people. But if he becomes idolatrous at any point, as with King Solomon later in his reign, then he is not considered wholehearted but evil in God's eyes. Now, is there something like this pattern found in the New Testament? Yes, it's usually called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the usual comment about this act is that it represents the only unpardonable sin. Interestingly there is no consensus among theologians on what the actual trespass of blasphemy of the holy spirit amounts to But the crux of the matter is that the blasphemy of uh, the blasphemy of the holy spirit does not involve any kind of harmful human to human criminal action rather Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a direct, intentional, malicious, hostile act of man towards God, just as is idolatry. A person who has committed idolatry or blasphemed the Holy Spirit, which just might be essentially the same things, is therefore not counted. Is wholehearted towards God, no matter how good or moral of a life he or she might otherwise be living. So, applying this understanding of the term wholehearted towards Yehovah to our scriptural conundrum concerning Avia, what we find is that on the one hand, King Avia did not commit. Terrible sins against other humans that we know of. And in fact, according to 2 Chronicles, he generally did the things that God told him to do and he did them in God's name. So in 2 Chronicles 13, is this admirable aspect of his life. It's that aspect that's focused on. And so the ancient editor sees Aviam. It's a lack of criminality against his loyal subjects as what makes him a righteous man. But on the other hand, in 1 Kings 15, we're told that Aviel walked in the ways of his father Rehoboam, and those ways are specifically referring to idolatry. Second Chronicles 12 says this of Rehoboam. But in time after Rehoboam had consolidated his rulership and had become strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the Torah of Adonai. Now Shema, the prophet, came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who gathered in Jerusalem because of Shishak and said to them, Here is what Adonai says, Because you have abandoned me, I have abandoned you to the hands of Shishak. To commit idolatry is to abandon God's Torah. To abandon God's Torah is to abandon God. That's the definition we get. And nothing has changed. So Aviyah sinned directly towards God in the same manner as Rehoboam his father did, we're told. Idolatry. And therefore therefore verse three says his Aviah's heart was not whole with Jehovah his Elohim, as contrasted with the heart of his forefather David, that was whole was Shalem with God. Therefore, first Kings fifteen portrays Aviah from the perspective of being wicked, not because he was mean or uncaring for his people but because he was an idolater to some level or another, thus he was not counted as wholehearted towards God. Today, wholeheartedness towards God is trusting His Son Yeshua as our Redeemer. And this is because Yeshua is God. Trusting Him is trusting God. Our sinning against other humans matters greatly and we will suffer consequences for it. But that's not the divine measuring rod of our passion and undivided loyalty for God and therefore of our wholeheartedness towards Him. But beware that we don't deceive ourselves. No matter how high we hold up our hands when we cry out to Him, nor how low in humility we bow our heads in prayer, when we mix in pagan worship and alternative man-made beliefs with our belief and worship of God, at some point, that's idolatry. It's no longer wholeheartedness. When we refuse to accept the Holy Scriptures, description of God, of His nature, of His character, and instead we kind of pick and choose in order to construct our own preferred image of God, at some point, that's idolatry. And it's not wholeheartedness. While other humans... Harming other humans is sin and it's wrong and it will bear consequences. It's nothing as compared to not being wholehearted towards God. The life of King David shows us that in the end passion for God and exclusivity of our loyalty towards Him is what we must strive for unceasingly. And while the redeemed of all ages and all eras are duty bound to obey all of God's laws and commandments or it is sin. And we today are equipped to follow those commandments in the proper spirit by means of God's Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That is still not the biblical and divine definition of wholeheartedness towards God and what we today might call a saving righteousness. We'll continue that thought with chapter 15 next time. Okay.